This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here for this interview episode with David Canfield. Hi, Katie. We have the interviews for today, you and me, um, and we're going to start with your conversation with Michael Shannon, who is in George and Tammy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He is once again very busy because he kind of keeps being so. But for Emmy purposes, we're really talking about George and Tammy since um, once again, he blew people away in that one. Yeah, he's great in this show. He and Jessica Chastain both. Take Shelter Reunion, which I know you talked and, about. <laughs> and yes, that is how we started. Uh, that is uh, an all-timer movie for me, and I think a very prophetic movie. Uh, as we went into, Michael Shannon's uh, always game to talk about societal collapse, so that was <laughs> <laughs> um, But you know, I, you really feel the special chemistry between them. I think Take Shelter may have been the first movie I, I ever saw where I was like really aware of Jessica Chastain. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was right in her big burst on like around the help period. Yes. And it was before I saw the help that year, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. It was kind of my first of that round of, of films. Um, and I, I remember how rich every scene between them was. I've seen the movie a few times since um, and can confirm. But um, it's something that they kind of where they pick up right where they left off in George and Tammy. And they're obviously here playing music icons. They're in this really sweeping and um, dark at times limited series. Um, but it's another really different kind of role for for him particularly. And he nails it. I don't want to pretend I understand the extent to which he appears in The Flash, but I know that he is back in the DC universe and you do talk about this to some extent as well. Yeah, one way we got into this um, was... Both with George and Tammy and The Flash, which are his sort of two big projects of this season. It's not a year, because obviously George and Tammy was last year, but however you want to mark that time. Sure. um, They both really evolved over the course of their development. In the case of George and Tammy, it was originally a film. Then it was going to be on Paramount Network. Remember that? Um, before landing at Showtime, kind of on the at the eleventh hour, um, in the Flash case, perhaps more obviously, there's been these huge leadership changes and controversies around uh, both the specific film with Ezra Miller, which uh, he does get into a little bit, um, and with the DC universe around it. And this movie has kind of been propped up by uh, Warner Brothers Discovery as the crown jewel of of what they have coming. Um, and so, yeah, he does talk pretty frankly about. Uh, maybe his reluctance to come back into that world, uh, especially feeling some with feeling some type of way about uh, what happened with Zack Snyder, mm. um, and and ultimately deciding to and, and feeling pretty good about doing so. 
it's fascinating the way that the superhero movie world has grown to the point that it encompasses just about everybody and someone like Michael Shannon, who you get the feeling like get left to his own devices but not necessarily engage in all of this, but giving really great performances and doing fascinating work in there. Um, it's always interesting to hear how they kind of, you know, dip their toe into that, but maintain a sense of themselves, which he's really very successfully done. Correct. As long as he gets to talk about Jeff Nichols, too, I think he's fine. <laughs> well, then let's hear all of that, that vast range of things to talk about in your conversation with Michael Shannon. Michael Shannon, thanks for joining us. Busy as ever. Um, we're going to talk about George and Tammy, but there's a lot on the way. You've got a limited series premiering on Showtime right now in Waco, The Aftermath. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Uh, you bet. So let's start with uh, George and Tammy. You're reuniting with Jessica Chastain here, back from when you guys did Take Shelter, which is genuinely one of my favorite movies. So we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, Thank you. But to start, I, I did want to start really with what that reunion felt like, because I, I think in both that movie and this show, you guys create a really intensely emotional dynamic that really translates. So, um, yeah, how did you find yourselves going there together uh, in this show? Oh, boy. Well, you know, it's quite an odyssey, uh, the story of, of these two people and, and how they come together. Um, it's like walking around the world or something it's a big it's a big trip um so you don't want to get overwhelmed by it so you just kind of start by putting one foot in front of the other you know you start by you know doing the research and you know there's plenty to read and watch and look at and then i don't know you you just try and imagine the commonality or the similarities that uh, you have with these people you're attempting to play, you know, and I think, I think Jessica and I, like the way that we got into this business and, and, and the way that we were able to accomplish what we've accomplished, we didn't take the easy route, you know, uh, yeah. we both came from, I guess, kind of similarly to George and Tammy, you know, uh, we had some hard knocks that that we came from and, and so mm -hmm. we could kind of identify with with that aspect of their lives and um i think also kind of like george and tammy our our the way we uh, our backgrounds uh, kind of unified us uh in, in a way you know i think we're just kind of kindred spirits i guess is what i'm saying in a mm -hmm. long-winded fashion yeah yeah i think you can see that for sure yeah. um to your point about the amount of research that a role like this takes. I, I'm not sure if you if you watch yourself, but this is one where I'd be especially curious, just given that you are working off of so much material, this is an iconic performer. Mm -hmm. um, were you interested in gauging the reaction or gauging your own take on how close you got, for example, or was that not <laughs> as important to you? Oh, you know, that, that can be, you can really torture yourself if you yeah. get into that, you know? I mean, I, Fortunately, I had already had the experience of playing, you know, Elvis Presley under my belt, which was, uh, you know, which is uniquely kind of terrifying sure. uh, situation. Um, and one I was very reluctant to do in the first place, but eventually was convinced that it was worthwhile. And, you know, it's, it's like Jerry Schilling said to me, who was one of, Elvis's closest and dearest friends, he said, 
the reason I want you to do to play my friend is not because I want you to look like him or sound like him or because there's plenty of people that make a business out of doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as I can tell, there's not many people that really try and consider from the inside out what it was, was like to actually be him, you know, and what it was actually like to to be in his shoes and to be in the world as him, you know. Um, mm. And so I kind of took that little nugget of advice with me into this process, you know, because the fact of the matter is, is I'm, I'm not, I went to the Country Music Hall of Fame and I looked at George Jones's suit hanging there mm-hmm. and it was tiny. It was a little tiny suit. And I, I could literally see my reflection in the glass standing there staring at the suit. I'm like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> this man is, um, no, no offense, but he's just much uh, smaller than, right. um, than I am. But it doesn't really matter. You know, it's like you could have found somebody that looked more like George Jones or maybe even sounded more like George Jones. But if they're not doing what my friend Jerry laid out when I was playing Elvis, then it's really kind of pointless. Like, it's not really art, you know? It's just imitation. Yeah. Uh, The other part of this to that point that I'm interested in is that you are uh, a musician yourself. Um, I believe you've said of actor bands, uh, I'm embarrassed by them and I'm an actor. (laughs) But... Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. But uh, it is a part of your creative life, part of your art, so... Well, it's funny because I started doing music before I ever started acting. The first art form I dabbled with was music when I was a kid. Um, yeah, sorry to interrupt. But yeah, so I guess I get a little leeway uh, because you of do. that. Yeah. Well, and you kind of show that you, you know what you're doing in a project like this. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Yeah. Does it feel to you, though, like you're able to tap into that part of your creative self that maybe isn't as much a part of your professional life uh, as it was, say, when you first started? It was a really nice feeling to show up at work and be be in a situation where I, I could sing and it was my job that day was to right. sing. Like, that, that felt really nice. As intimidating as it was and as challenging as it was, it still was very exciting to me because I love music. And I love singing. And I was surrounded by all the people that play the musicians in the show are actual highly regarded Nashville musicians. And so between takes, if I started playing a guitar or something, they could all come in and we just start playing a song. Mm-hmm. That was a lot of fun, you know, because it's more fun doing that than like, you know, the scene where I start shooting a shotgun in the house or something. Sure. <laughs> Maybe a little closer to close to your own life there. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. No comment. <laughs> All right. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. 
people want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a, a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts. I know you've also talked in the past about, as many actors do, probably every actor does, the industry's, um, you know, stay in your lane mentality. I'm not sure how much that applies to music, but I am curious, even just within your career as an actor, like, how do you see what your lane is? Or how do you see what they see your lane is? Because you have done a lot of different kinds of work. You know, I really, I, I really appreciate you saying that because I feel early on in my career, I don't know, the first 10 years or so, I, then there's still people that do it to this day, but there's some people that just think I just do one thing. And they're like, oh, you always, you're always the bad guy or you're sure. the guy I hate or something like that. I'm like, what are you, what are you basing that on? I don't, <laughs> have you literally sat down and watched every single thing I've ever done? Or is this just seriously a <laughs> impression you have in the, the miasma of your mind, you know? And, yeah. and 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 I used to get like kind of offended by it, and then I just realized it wasn't worth it. Like, it doesn't really matter. And you make some movies that, or some material that you're really passionate about, and and it, it falls by the wayside a little bit. And then maybe stuff that you know is more like what you're quote unquote known for uh-huh. also has a bigger audience, and then. You're like, well, I can't control that. You know, I don't, I'm not doing the marketing or the distributing. I'm just kind of a, I really think of myself kind of as a hired gun, you know? Yeah. The decision I get to make is whether I say yes or no. And then once you say yes, you just, you do it. Yeah. Is there any particular project though, where whether it was just saying yes or no, or you really fought for a role that did feel like it was going against that perception uh, and you were excited by that. I mean, so many of them, you know, I mean, I feel like I've hit a lot of the genres filmmaking wise. Um, yeah. I, and I've, I've, I've gotten to a point, you know, there was one situation where there, there was a project that I, that I wanted to do and I was really fond of uh, the director and I went to meet him and he said, I want you to play this one guy in the script. And I and I just was very honest with him. I said, well, I, I can't stand that guy. I don't want to be that guy. Huh. That guy's horrible. And he's like, oh, okay. Well, who do you want to be? And I'm like, I want to be this other guy. I like him. And he's like, oh, oh I hadn't thought of that. Okay, hmm. you want to be that other guy? And that was like, I consider that a major victory. Yeah, That was kind of the first time I did that. That was the first time I did that, where I just told somebody, no, I'm not. You may think, based on this idea of who I am, that this is what I'm supposed to be doing, but I, I actually should be doing this other thing. Mm. And that, I, I felt like that I, that was a real before and after kind of demarcation for me. Yeah. Yeah, that's sometimes all you have to do, right? To just sort of know you can advocate for yourself in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when I think of a movie like Take Shelter, 
on the one hand, it's a movie where you get to show and play like an extraordinary range of just modes, emotions, and things like that. But it also perhaps contains what I think you're probably known for, which is you're very good at, for lack of a better way of putting it, kind of losing it on camera. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I do want to ask, in with a movie like that, I remember the first time I watched it, I was really just blown away and taken aback by those really visceral scenes. Like, where do you go as an actor in scenes like that? I think it, you just go away. Like, you just hmm. go away. You just go uh, disappear. And I know that kind of sounds like a non-answer, you know? No, not at all. But but it's like, you you definitely, you can't be like watching yourself or you can't be like thinking about, well, how's this going to look? Or it's not something you can really orchestrate or try and have too much control over, you know? It's like, if you identify with what the person's going through, which I did very much in that instance, mm-hmm. I mean, in a way, that was, that's something I, I want to say all the time. It's still to this day. And I, it's its curious, you know, when I'm in that scene, I think you're talking about, the, you know, the fish fry scene. Yeah. Where Curtis is saying there's a storm coming and not a one who's ready for it. I mean, I thought, well, maybe, maybe if people watch this movie, they'll wake up and realize what the heck's going on. And then like all these years later, it's like the world's still pretty much the same it's just crazy but you know i just take it i look at it as an opportunity it's it's an opportunity to shock people out of their i don't know complacency or their kind of zoned out state of being you know like i mean i think that's why people watch these things or what there's a variety of reasons you know there's there's the escapism aspect and the like oh i just want to veg out but i've I've never been particularly interested in that stuff but yeah i did because i'm speaking when i when i i feel like i'm speaking on behalf of not just myself or not even just my character you know but the, a lot of people that are that are feeling something similar and would like to see that you know, represented on, on, on screen. Yeah. I, I, it has resonated for many years. And if you watch it now, it still has that, that looming sense of doom or terror. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. it hits just as hard <laughs> as it did then. Um, and you also just filmed the Joshua Oppenheimer apocalypse musical. Do I have that right? I'm still actually I'm in the midst of it. We're we're shooting in three different countries and I we see. just wrapped in Ireland, but now we're moving on to Italy and then Germany. But yeah, we're about we're about halfway finished. Yeah. Yes, uh, it is it is a super <laughs> super bleak uh but actually quite entertaining at the same time, oddly. Uh, it's it's quite a hat trick, Mr. Oppenheimer's pulling off. I don't want to jinx it. We're still shooting, so knock on wood. Yeah, yeah. You still you do get that sort of cross of musical and apocalypse, both of both of which seem to keep finding you, Michael. <laughs> yeah, right. Finally, in one package. Yes, the musical apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, we've also got uh, another Jeff Nichols movie coming out by Griders. I think you've mm-hmm. done pretty much every one. Um, yeah. So, you know, looking, say, with uh, Jessica Chastain and George and Tammy or with Jeff over and over, what kind of comfort do you get as an actor in working with people over and over, as you've done in a few different cases? Well, they, you know, they start to feel like family, you know. I mean, we're all a bunch of misfit kids when you get down to it. So it's like, it's like having your gang. It's like our gang, you know, like the little rascals. Um, it's just a, an affinity with one another, a similar aesthetic, you know. Knowing that you have like um, similar kind of wavelength, you know. I mean, Jeff. Uh, Jeff really feels like uh, a brother to me, you know, and uh, I, I feel real peaceful when I'm working with him. Like I, I feel safe, and there's not a lot of confusion or like what the heck's this guy talking about, you know? Like uh, you, we just get each other, you know? Yeah. Uh, as an aside, I believe Austin Butler is in that movie, so I'm curious if you guys exchanged Elvis notes at all. <laughs> I mean, it came up when we met, like, real super fast. I was like, man, you, you crushed that. And he's like, yeah. He's like, yeah, you were all right, too. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and that was it. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, he's just, oh, I just adore him. He's a sweet, sweet fella, Austin. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm excited to see that one. I think it's been a little while since we've had a new Jeff Nichols movie. So. It's been way too long. Long overdue. That guy's actually been through some... Man, he's he had a tough patch there. He was trying to make some really big, big projects, and uh, those are just... Sometimes you put a lot of effort into those things, and they just don't come to fruition, you know? When, it's, when the budget gets real high, you know? So he... He kind of dropped the clutch and went in reverse and went down another road. But I'm glad he did. This Bike Riders movie is uh, something he's been wanting to make for a long time. So, Yeah. Yeah, he's one of those filmmakers where I, I don't want to say you worry about in that sort of industry shift around COVID, but uh, he's one where you wonder what he's up to. So it is good to see that he got back on his feet there. Yeah, I mean, he can always write. Like, he's writing all the time. But... Um, you know, the thing about Jeff, if you look at his movies, is that, like, he went from, like, Shotgun Stories, which was, like, $5 to make, then yep. Take Shelter was, like, a million, and then he just kept trying to go up the, the ladder with each movie. Um, and then Midnight Special was actually, you know, pretty big film. And then he he was trying to go for that. He's like, can I get to that, you know nine figure type movie and make something really you know i don't know his james cameron thing or something but uh but it didn't work out but it it will we'll get to it someday yeah you mentioned yourself feeling kind of like a hired gun so i am curious as a as a working actor like how closely do you observe industry shifts like even with george and tammy the origins of this are a movie uh, and it feels like the kind of thing that would have been a movie 10 years ago. Now it's a limited mm-hmm. series. Um, is it something you've kind of observed as an actor, someone who's doing a lot of th- different things every year? Well, when all these limited series started coming down the pike, I was like, wait a minute, what the heck is this? Right. Like, 
because it used to be, you know, you either were doing a movie or you were on a series. And I was real clear, like, I didn't really want to be on a series. I dug doing movies. I love doing theater. I did not want to be, like, on 10 seasons of some procedural show. I knew sure. that. And it was very clear. But then these limited series came along and all these streamers, which is not my, like, it's just not my milieu at all. Like, mm -hmm. I don't want to watch. I don't like to watch stuff on, like, a laptop, you know. Mm -hmm. I either want to be in, a like, a movie theater or theater theater. But people kept saying, well, this is what's, this is what's going on now. Um, this is what there is to uh, take advantage of or when this is what you're being offered. But, you know, saying all that, I'm very pleased, actually, that George and Tammy wound up being a limited series. I think it would have suffered as a movie. Um, I think Abe Sylvia, the writer, creator, had a lot more real estate, you know, a lot more time to tell a more nuanced kind of specific story because of the of the format you know i think yeah. if it would if you try to squeeze what we did into like a 90 minute movie it would have been it would have been tedious sometimes it's weird you make things shorter and you think everybody thinks uh well you got to make things shorter because people's attention spans are so short and you only get so much time but a lot of times I find the shorter you make something, the more boring it gets because you mm -hmm. take out all the interesting details and you just leave the broad strokes that you've already seen like 500 times before in so many other movies or shows or whatever. So I don't think it's necessarily true that making things shorter makes them more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> in that sense, then you do like tv a little bit because you get mm -hmm. you get that room yeah and i was surprised like when i did boardwalk empire sure i did that for five years and i didn't see myself ever doing a tv show for five years but but that that was pretty rewarding in the in the grand scheme of things yeah pilot directed by scorsese is probably a good way to convince you yeah that's definitely that's a big juicy worm on the hook there yeah uh, the other industry shift I wanted to ask you about was uh, you being in a tentpole, the upcoming Flash movie. Um, do you like care about the noise around the changing of that guard and sort of all of the talk around exactly what this movie represents for the studio and how it's made those kinds of shifts of late? I I initially had some trepidation about it going into it just because uh, I just adore Zack Snyder. Zach gave me the, an extraordinary opportunity when he offered me that part. I, mm -hmm. I, 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 I was flabbergasted when he offered me that part. I did. I never imagined that anybody would ever give me an opportunity like that. Um, and I enjoyed working with him so much, and I just think the world of him. And so, when all that went down with the Justice League, um, it really upset me. Now, I, I know there's two sides to every story or whatever, and I might not have all the facts, so I shouldn't have too strong an opinion about it. But when Andy called me about The Flash, first of all, I was just 
confused. I was like, I didn't I die at the right. end? Whoa, what are you, what, am I like a zombie or what's going <laughs> on? But then I confessed to Andy. I said, look, I, I really got to get Zach's blessing to do this. I, I'm not going to feel comfortable unless he says he understands. But Zach gave me that that blessing and um, I went and did it. You know, I wasn't there very long. It's, it wasn't like, it was a totally different experience to Man of Steel, you know. Man of Steel was like months and months of my life and yeah. almost a year if you if you count them, the training that we did leading up to the shoot. And Flash, I was in and out of there in like, you know, a couple of weeks. So, yeah. Uh, but um, I know, yeah, I hear there's been some, I, I got to admit, I'm not like, I'm not looking at the trades every morning, you know, right. keeping the, uh, my finger on the pulse of things. But I, I know there's been some, some issues. But it seems like they're, they're ready to let it out. And you know, as far as maybe you're talking about Ezra, I, I, I thought Ezra was lovely. Uh, was very uh, kind to me when I was there. Um, and. I I know it's 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 difficult to talk about, but um, yeah, I I always I I always I always give people a lot of slack in this business because this business uh, there's a lot of people in this business that mm-hmm. have issues, and some people get more um, some people have more privacy than others, and uh, anytime somebody's out in the spotlight getting picked on I, I i feel for them even even if it's warranted you know yeah it, it's just still it's a horrible situation yeah uh look no further than george and tammy for yeah, <laughs> evidence right. of people having exactly. some troubles yeah you know when i watched george and tammy the first thing i thought was this feels like an enormous commitment on both a technical and an emotional level and I think of you as someone who pops up on my screen a lot of different ways pretty much every year. Does it ever get to feeling like you're doing too much? Wow. Um, I've had that thought. Yeah, I won't lie. I mean, there, there'll be times where I, I'll, I'll stop and think, I don't know how much longer I can do this. Like, how many different people can I be? Like, I've been a lot of different people. <laughs> You have. So the other day, like, I like I played Elvis and George Jones now, and then somebody's calling up and saying, "Well, would he play Johnny Cash?" I'm like, "What am? What am I? Am I like a one man, Madame Tussauds wax museum or something? Like, (laughs) am I like Lon Chaney Jr. or something? Like, what's going on here?" Um, but I gotta say, you know, COVID helped with that a little bit. That was a reset for all of us, right? You know, mm-hmm. um, although it wasn't even really that long of a layoff for me. It was four months, I think, before I was doing uh, Nine Perfect Strangers in Australia. But yeah, um, that's not that long, Michael. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, I guess I would stop if I. But I'm all. Uh, you know, alternatively, you have to always keep in perspective how fortunate you are. Because, you know? like, I know a lot of people that um, would would trade places with me in a heartbeat. You know? Sure. So, uh, 
and people that I came up with in Chicago that are genuinely as talented as I am um, and don't get the opportunities I get. So, and then if you look around, you're like, well, I'm tired and I'm beat up and, but look at this amazing thing I'm making. Yeah. Like I got to feel that way when I was doing George and Tammy. I got to feel that way when I was doing Waco. I feel that way now making the end. The tough part is when you look around set and you're like, oh, this is a piece of shit. I wonder the fuck am I doing here? That's that's when it gets tricky. But but that doesn't that doesn't if you're smart about the choices you make, that doesn't happen too often. So now we're going to hear the conversation that I had with Betty Gilpin. She is the star of the new Peacock series, Mrs. Davis, um, which I think if you hear the very basic description, and she was doing press for her memoir last fall when she was filming it, and um, the only logline she was allowed to say was like, she's about a nun battling an all-powerful AI named Mrs. Davis, and that was all (laughs) they could say. Um, But as soon as you start the show, it reveals itself to be much, much more complicated than that. And so this conversation we had a uh, ghost up until episode five, which is what has aired so far. So if you have not watched Mrs. Davis and you don't want to be spoiled, you might want to go catch up on it and then come back to it. Um, there's a lot of twists that I don't think ruin it, but I think it is one of those stories that as it unfolds gets more and more satisfying. Um, Betty Gilpin is right at the center of it. It's this incredible commanding lead role, which if you've seen her on Glow or even in Gaslit last year, you kind of know she's more than up for. Um, But uh, Jake McDormand and Andy McQueen are kind of like the two other main men in her life who play really interesting roles. Margot Martindale shows up. Elizabeth Marvel shows up. David Arquette. The list kind of goes on and on. Um, David, I assume that you, like me, uh, I saw Betty Gilpin in Glow and thought I will follow her anywhere. I'm imagining you're uh, on the same page as me. Exact same. She was the absolute standout of that show. She was the kind of recurring Emmy nominee, the the, mm-hmm. the, the representative for that show, which had a great cast. Um, but she definitely was a shining light even among them. Um, I have not seen any of Mrs. Davis, and yet I do plan on listening to this interview because I think it will help me sort through my confusion over what exactly the show is. <laughs> and I, I'm fine to be spoiled a little bit because I read some great reviews of it, and I think I need a little bit of guidance on my way in. So I'm excited yeah, for it. Yeah, it might not hurt. I mean, it's a show where you get to the end of an episode, you're like, oh, I think I know what the show is. And then the next episode starts, you're like, hang on, where are we going with this? I mean, she's on this kind of like globe trotting adventure. I, I will let the rest of the spoilers kind of uh, wait in the interview. Um, But I think if you've been really wanting to see Betty Gilpin, like do a lot and do a wide range of things. And there's scenes that are romantic and there's scenes that are dramatic and it gets surprisingly funny. She's so good at kind of breaking the tension of a scene uh, with her sense of humor. Um, The show's created by Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof. I think many people are eager to see the connections to Lost and its many twists. It has really weird episode titles like Watchmen. Um, Like episode five, last one we're discussing, is called A Great Place to Drink to Gain Control of Your Drink. I watched the episode. I don't know what that means. Um, but I think <laughs> I may I'll keep watching and uh, figure out more. Um, so let's hear all about that and the many twists of Mrs. Davis in my conversation with Betty Gilpin. Well, hello, Betty Gilpin. Thank you so much for joining us to talk openly a little bit about Mrs. Davis, your new show on Peacock. 
<laughs> openly a little bit. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, you're, this show is a mystery. Um, I was just saying before we started that there was kind of like the one line about a nun battling an AI that we could talk about before the show aired. A few episodes are out now. But for anyone who hasn't seen the show and doesn't want to be spoiled, I kind of want to talk more generally about it. Also, just because I'm curious about how you sign on to something so wild and freewheeling and hard to explain. Um, and I'm assuming that you met with Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof, the co-creators, and they sold you on this somehow. Um, what was their pitch for, for this wild and wonderful show? I mean, God, somehow I was in one sentence in. And then <laughs> as I learned more and more, I was like, this is incredible. I mean, the jobs that are, you know, more sort of not excruciating, but the the harder ones are the ones where you feel like you're getting to do 10% of what you can and want to do. And mm-hmm. I think that's probably true for any field where you're just sitting there being like, oh, I could do so much more and I wish I had more red meat to deal with. And this is like an Everest of red meat <laughs> in terms of <laughs> um, material. Uh, and I had worked with Damon Lindelof on... First of all, thank you for having me. Oh, um, <laughs> you're very welcome. And we're back into the sentence I started. Um, I had worked with Damon on The Hunt, mm-hmm. uh, which was a sort of classic Damon hide your vegetables in weirdness, yep. like ask big questions while sort of inventing a strange genre. And also another thing where you describe it and everyone thinks it's one thing and then you get into it and it's something entirely different. Yes, exactly. And every time you think you have it figured out, it just keeps changing and changing and changing. Um, and for Mrs. Davis, he teamed up with Tara Hernandez and their brains together. I keep describing Uh, Mrs. Davis says, no country for old Looney Tunes. Like I would every day that I showed up to work, we were doing a different genre of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And for my jumping beans in a blender brain, that is great and Mm -hmm. a dream. Um, And to me, it's more like what life is like your life in a day changes genre Mm -hmm. 30 times. So as an actor, it was um, a field day. It was so much fun to do. Well, I think of the work that you did on Glow and how, um, you know, varied and how much you were able to do there. But you're at the center of this in a way that I don't think you really happened in anything other than The Hunt almost and maybe even more so than that. I mean, that is an Everest in its own right and obviously an opportunity to jump at. But what's the intimidation factor in that, too, of being so central to the story? Yeah, I had only been you know, number one on the call sheet, I, I think one other time at in the hunt. And it was always a sort of daunting thing to me. But I think I, working my way up the call sheet over 15 years, I've had <laughs> the honor and privilege of watching so many incredible number ones. Um, you know, Alison Brie, Edie Falco, I, I just people who were so good at both... Um, both being caretakers and bosses, I don't think I don't know that I'm good at either. But uh, it was, I, I don't know. I think I had always sort of told myself I had assigned my identity to being a sidekick, and mm-hmm. and I was sort of surprised to be really excited to to helm this one. Um, but you know, it, it it it's really me and Jake McDormand and Andy McQueen, and that it, it, it is these scripts are not actor proof. Like they, they had to be very specific people to carry this. Um, mm-hmm. braid of insanity 
of text and the actors just it, it felt like every day you'd show up and a different pro would just knock it out of the park. So, yeah, I really didn't have to do much. Well, did you did you take some of that leadership uh, guidance you'd had from Edie Falco and Alison Brie? Like, did you did you find yourself saying, oh, well, they, this helped me when I was there for one day. So I'm going to do that. Like, did you play out those lessons you'd learned? Totally. You know, I think that, um, you know, I got my start mostly in theater and did really plays in New York for like the first decade out of college and then like episodes of stuff here and there to keep qualifying for health insurance and was certainly <laughs> trying to be in film and TV and film and TV just didn't really want me. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think the social aspect of uh, the model of a play where you have a month, maybe five weeks of rehearsal and then performances, it was really more conducive to the kind of person that I maybe was where I had all these ideas creatively, but I was pretty shy and nervous and second guessed myself. And it really took me five weeks to be like, <clears throat> I have an idea <laughs> and I'd like to do it in the play. And then for TV and film, it's like there's... 20 minutes. Yeah, you got to go. That, that process is condensed into 20 minutes where like you better find the confidence and feeling comfortable and not worry that the sound guy hates you or <laughs> getting your head about, you know, whatever the way your shoes feel because your ideas have to go from your brain out your mouth and be committed to being on film forever. Mm -hmm. um, and it, at first it was really intimidating to see that people who were just comfortable with who they are and in a space full of people that highway from their brain out their mouth had far fewer obstacles than mine. And mm -hmm. I think watching different people and their different processes on set, it made it helped me find my own. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when you're standing across from a good actor in the scene, it's much easier to sort of find that tunnel vision that I could find much easier in a play on set. Um, and it, it just, every single actor in this show just blew my mind. Even the people who had a handful of lines, it was some sort of weird alignment where everybody was incredible. And that just made my job insanely easy. Well, there's this beautiful thing that keeps happening episode by episode where Mrs. Davis, the AI, kind of manifests as these different people who have an earpiece in. And you have these interactions with like a kindergarten teacher, or this old British lady on a train, and they become a robot while being themselves. And it's these like little mini intense one-on-ones that you have with this wide range of actors. You, you never know who it's going to be next. Totally. Yes. Yeah. The people are sort of proxying for her yeah. and you never hear Mrs. Davis, but she or it is feeding them what to say. Um, and yeah, I, I said to Jake McDorman, I was like, it feels like everybody in this show is playing a role that like, their dad would love to watch them play like there's some sort of <laughs> id or like inherently themselves that they're accessing like Christy Montopoulos in this show is so ridiculous who plays JQ yeah is so out of control but everybody um but so that British lady who proxies Mrs. Davis on the train you know a lot of times most of the time the actors are only given the pages of the scene that they're in yeah and so have no idea what the show is about and that lady, we did this scene where she's, you know, proxying for Mrs. Davis and telling me what this all-powerful AI needs to say to me. We filmed the scene. She was incredible. We wrapped. And she said to me, they were like, cut. And she was like, I, you know, I've never played a hologram before. This is exciting. And I was like, oh, my God, you're not a hologram. She's like, I, 
I'm not. <laughs> Can we do it again? It's like, whatever you did was perfect. She kind of could be. Like, I mean, yeah. I, I haven't finished the season yet. So Mrs. Davis could be a hologram later in the season as, as far as I know. Yeah, anything goes. Yeah, maybe I'm a hologram. <laughs> Who knows? That's true. Um, so when your book came out last fall, you were shooting Mrs. Davis. And your book and then the interviews you were doing kind of talked a lot about, like, your body as an actress and as a person and, like, being in your 30s and knowing that, like, your body is not going to be the same as you get older. And then you get to make yeah. the show where you're in a nun's habit the whole time, which seems like the greatest gift to an actor who has had to, like, maybe reveal more skin than you wanted to. Was that part of your formula of saying this is the role for me? I mean, you look great in a nun's habit, to be clear. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, you know, uh, it's, I, first of all, I was never like coerced into showing too oh, much sure, skin. It sure. was sort of like a, a knowing toll that I was in on to get the parts that I wanted and probably like a real picture of what things were like 15 years ago and how things are different now. Yeah. Like, I, I think things are just totally, you know, completely different. Rightfully so. Uh but, you know, I think that I sort of always told myself um, 15 years ago, like, oh, I, I, I feel like my body and youth is this sort of like mega horn, megaphone that speaks for me before I can speak for myself. And it's sort of like the necessary drugs that I have to bring to the party to be allowed into said party. And I can't wait to just be at the party and not have to bring the drugs. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know... As I get a little older, I realize like, oh, maybe I was relying on those things and sort of like, it's okay that I'm here, right? I'm in a tight costume. So uh, does that like, if I look good in the wide shot, can I do my weird ideas in the mm -hmm. close up? And I think I have to be honest with myself in learning the lesson of... Um, you know, that I don't feel like I need to check those boxes in order to play a part. Like, I have to kind of get to that conclusion and that epiphany before society does, because maybe society never will. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I probably dates me that I'm sort of looking over my shoulder being like, and it's okay that I there's not a scene where I'm like slow-mo washing a car, right? <laughs> like, I can just be... The person trying to figure out the mystery. It doesn't have to be like mystery and areolas. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, it's a, it, it was um, a new kind of drug feeling just sort of uh, like the, the Swiss Army knife tools that I was being asked to bring were more brain focused instead of boob focused although the boobs are still here they're just <laughs> beneath the wool of the habit i mean the face too like that the oh, it's not what's it called the thing on your head it's not the habit the wimple it's, the wimple my goodness i didn't go to catholic yes. school um it, it makes your face so much more the focus and you know close-ups are part of everything that you do but i think that i would imagine the choices that you make knowing that your face is has this like literal halo around it that's an interesting change too right yeah i mean i I don't know. I always make crazy thousands of faces per scene, <laughs> probably too many. Um, so I don't know. I love a halo. <laughs> I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hillary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. 
Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. To get into spoilers, since we're allowed to a little bit, and you mentioned Annie McQueen as being kind of one of your primary scene partners, and I think it's revealed uh, over the course of the second or third episode that he is, in fact, Jesus, the the one that we know. It's a of. casual reveal <laughs> that my boyfriend is Jesus. Exactly. Husband, uh, betrothed in yes, some sorry, kind of matrimony. Sorry, yes. That, Husband, yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, don't, don't discount yourself. Um, and the, the contours, you know, uh, five episodes varied in what I've seen, so I can't spoil beyond that, but, you know, the exact details of that are not known. But I think that the moment where you see, I guess, Lizzie at that point, she hasn't become Simone yet, fall in love is really interesting. And I've heard actors describe what it is to show someone falling in love with someone on screen and how you capture that yourself. And I wonder how that worked for you because it's such a specific emotion and it really, again, it's, it's all in your face of what makes that happen. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think I felt, I at first felt not complicated about my character being married to Jesus. <laughs> I myself am not a person of faith. Um, my dad happens to be both an actor and an Episcopalian priest. Yeah. Uh, and through my dad, was able to Zoom with some nuns yeah. and talk to them about what their relationship was with Jesus and um, and their lives as nuns. And I was getting really heady about, okay, so I'm this character is in love with this metaphysical thing. Is it like being in love with Jupiter or the air? <laughs> um, and I realized, I think she's just in love with Jay. And mm -hmm. this is a person who she's fallen in love with who happens to be a Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that just making it all the more powerful. And, you know, I think that Oftentimes I've played characters who are either sort of hardened, sarcastic, wry, know all the answers, have status over the person that they're talking to, eye-rolly people, or very vulnerable, weepy, arms open, optimistic, hopeful people. And I think that my character, Lizzie slash Simone, started out as the former and mm -hmm. love kind of forced her into being the latter a little mm -hmm. bit like she's sort of both and that is kind of what being in love does in general um i mean at least for me and you know being a mom has done that for me where you know i am suddenly uh weeping at a butterfly landing on cement where i used <laughs> to like flip off the butterfly um and i think that i just thought about that where uh you know, the way she looks at him and falling in love with him and being with him is against every fiber of her identity, opening her arms up to the world in a loving way. Mm -hmm. Does your dad have a strong opinion, like being an Episcopalian priest? Is he uh, intrigued by this this version of a relationship with Jesus? Yeah, I mean, I've told him what it's about. He's going to come. There's a screening in New York that he's going to come to. In, a, in like two weeks and I'll be very interested to sit next to him and see what he thinks. <laughs> um, I'm sure people will feel mixed about it. You know, at the time of our, this current conversation, the show hasn't come out. So yeah. who knows, maybe I'll be um, in a dungeon in the Vatican by the time this airs. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I think that we've never really seen this portrayal of a relationship with Jesus like this or religion. Um, and, you 
you know, some of the stuff that the show touches on, even though I am not religious, I think about all the time, you know, in raising my daughter, who's two, I'm trying to get her to not look at screens and not be addicted to screens, a thing that I myself am extremely addicted to, Mm -hmm, can't mm -hmm. pee without watching Millie Bobby Brown take a lie detector test on my phone. Like (laughs) That's us. We did. We made that. Oh, great. Yeah. (laughs) Congratulations. I'm fully addicted. It worked. I've seen all the lie detector tests. Um, If I'm addicted to the internet and spend too much of my day on it and am telling my daughter, this is poison, Mm -hmm. you know, what are we sort of, are we playing with fire in having all the answers in our pocket in, in a phone? And, you know, what are we kind of risking? And I think for in our show, Simone is saying, you know, we're risking a our capability and portal to the intangible mm-hmm. or to the big questions. Um, you know, if we have all the answers in our phone, do we stop asking the big questions or like, yeah. do we stop being able to, you know, she's afraid she's going to stop being able to go to falafel and that it's eating society in a way that's uh, irreversible. And I don't know. I think we as a society are at that moment with, open AI and chat to, you know. Yeah, the, I mean, God, the, the topicality of this show, like, since you filmed yeah. it, is crazy. I think more, way, I think I understand AI in a way that I absolutely didn't when you were making this show because of all that news you're talking about. And I imagine many people are in the same boat. Yeah, and I think we're sort of in a moment of like, are you our savior or are you our downfall? Yeah. Um, and I think that's what our show asks as well, um, it being made before any of this was, you know, a thing. <laughs> Um, I love what you were saying earlier about, you know, working 15 years ago and being in the industry for as long as you have. And we're close enough to the same age that, like, we've kind of seen similar changes happen. I mean, you're working with a female showrunner is something that wouldn't have happened 15 years ago. Like, there's so many things that are different. And in another interview, you were saying how you kind of have to pretend that you were, like, there all along. And, we like, we were woke and we kind of knew all the answers all along. Like, does does being the lead of a show, does having this level of power, like, how are you reflecting still on how we kind of do right by the generation behind us and and try to catch up with all the the correct things that they're doing that we didn't know better than to do? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, you know, I'm still just an actor. I'm not like a mogul. (laughs) (laughs) Not yet. Um, I still just show up and memorize. Uh, (laughs) I'm definitely not changing the world. But I do think in our industry and in our culture, we have the bad habit of... I I think sometimes we try to sell the merch of a feminist victory before having the victory itself. Mm -hmm. Like, I think we're all so nervous that we're like, everything's fixed. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. It's done. And um, I think we sometimes skip a step there. So I think what I'm trying to do is just be honest about the work that I myself have left to do. You know, every time I work with someone who's, a member of Gen Z, I realized, oh, I, I'm a dinosaur who has a lot of uh, reading and learning and listening to do. <laughs> um, but yeah, things are are totally changing in an exciting way. I just think we're not 
We're not at the rap party just yeah. yet. <laughs> I think we're so hard on ourselves, too, of like what we didn't know in 2006. Like, you don't know what you don't know. And there's a uh, there's like a growing past it, but saying like, it's so it's OK to have done what you did in the mid 2000s. And we've all learned <laughs> since then. I certainly hope so. I mean, my daughter is for sure going to cancel me the moment she has a computer <laughs> and logical thinking. She's like, so I did some Googling. You're done. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask about the motherhood thing, too. And this is like an Another giant question. But, you know, talking about being first on the call sheet and kind of learning as a leader, I feel like since I have become a parent and it didn't happen immediately, but like kind of over time, I just had to be like, I just had to be in charge. Like I have to like say this is what is happening and we're going to do that. Have you found the same thing in like in being on a set and acting that like being a mom kind of teaches you to take power in that way? In other yeah. aspects? Yeah. And I think my being a mom kind of it just made my are you mad at me metabolism quicker mm-hmm. Uh, and low a lower priority. Mm-hmm. Like I, I used to just hold on to things for so long and obsess over interactions. Of like, oh god, and then I said this, and I said this, and I can't do this, and I can't stand up for myself because this person will be mad, mad, and blah 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 blah. Um, and now it's just less of a big deal. Like mm-hmm. uh, I, I realize, like when you speak up for yourself or you voice an opinion, you know, no one dies. It's not it's not as big of a deal in your head. I think that I also realized my desperate need to be liked uh, and not seem pushy or narcissistic was actually taking up way more space than if I just said what I thought Mm -hmm. or did, you know, contributed the work that I wanted to, you know. If in my head, I was like, oh, I'm taking up the least amount of space by being like a quiet mouse person. Like, it's actually louder (laughs) and and more annoying. Yeah. but, you know, that's youth, baby. It, t- it, took me, it took me a long time. And hopefully it'll just be easier and easier for each generation and, yeah. and a quicker process. You know, yeah. we apologized and shrunk so they could speak up and soar. Yeah. Well, I feel like the, mo- the moment you absorb your kid being mad at you, like whatever age you realize that like, like you're, it's okay to be mad at me. Like, I'm still right. And like that kind of gives you a wings in some way where you're just like, oh, I can just have yeah. someone be mad at me and then move on. Yeah, completely. And I think, you know, I see my daughter now who, of course, is two and just pure id and like a Thor Always person. Mad. And like Always. Sla- well, and also also so satisfied with herself, like looks in the mirror and slaps her belly and walks around with like, you know, peanut butter all over her face. And everything is everything is possibility. And she never second guesses herself. And I think that I sadly sort of assigned so much of my um, self-hate and depression, I I sort of was like, well, that's a necessary part of my creative process. Mm. Like that is, though it's my albatross and sucks, it's also my window into making the work that I want to do and asking these questions and transforming into these dark characters. And I, I think I'm just now realizing like, Oh yeah, that was a lie. Mm-hmm. I sort I don't need to lean into being hard on myself or depression or like those things are always going to be there. I don't need to pretend that they're also kind of necessary drugs, superpowers to get somewhere. Yeah. Um, you know, I I, I can sort of replace that with self care. Yeah. Um yeah, I, I think I had just sort of laced that into my identity in a way that was pretty unhelpful. And I I hope that my daughter will do that. 
That does it for today's episode. We'll be back on Thursday. Find us in the meantime at VanityFair.com. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider. And on Twitter on our own, I am at Katie Rich and David. David Canfield, 97. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. Ever wanted to go inside the Met Gala? I'm Cho Minardi, and this week on The Run Through Vogue, we take you inside the world's most exclusive and glamorous party. We'll talk about the best looks from the red carpet and everything that happened after. Listen to The Run Through Vogue wherever you get your podcasts.